Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. This week, I'm joined by Dr. Jennifer Dixon, Chief Executive of the Health Foundation, whose mission is to improve the quality of healthcare within the British population. In this episode, we'll focus on healthcare reforms, the future of the National Health Service, the NHS, and the concept of the future hospital. Jennifer completed her medical degree at the University of Bristol, where she was also awarded an honorary Doctor of Science in 2016. She went on to complete a master's degree with distinction in public health and a PhD in health services research at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, as well as obtaining a certificate in health economics from the University of Aberdeen and serving as a Harkness Fellow in New York. Jennifer initially specialised in paediatric medicine across London's teaching hospitals before transferring her vast array of skills to a career in policymaking. In 2023, Jennifer was appointed Honorary Lecturer at the London School of Economics. She's also a former Honorary Lecturer at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and the Imperial College Business School. She appears regularly across the media from BBC News to Newsnight. Aside from her extraordinary career, and frankly, it's astonishing that she has time for anything, she's married with two children, is an exhibited artist, has a strong interest in 20th century European cultural and political history, and British and American politics and economics, and speaks early Russian. My goodness. We're honored to have Jennifer with us here today, and I'm very much looking forward to hearing more about her career and the amazing work she's done so far and what's to come. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Jennifer Dixon. Thank you, Jonathan. No pressure then. No pressure, not at all. So actually, look, you've clearly got a a thirst for knowledge. Was your educational journey all premeditated or did one thing lead uh, sort of organically to the next? What first inspired you to go into the field of paediatric medicine and then take the leap into policymaking? Uh, well, thank you for that and for that marvellous introduction. Well, I suppose the short answer is it wasn't premeditated, but I suppose looking backwards, it kind of makes sense. So I think the first thing to say is um, medicine, I was good at science, was very interested in in you know applying science for greater good. So that's fairly typical, isn't it? But the truth is, is that, uh, you know, at school and then actually at university, the books on my bedside table were all about politics and economics. And indeed, while I was at university, I was elected as a student union sort of politician, as it were. So I was always very interested and uh, I really enjoyed paediatric medicine. But uh, as time went on, I felt so I did five years of it in the end and it was very exciting. But I felt that there were certain bits of my brain capability interests that simply weren't touched by that. So I then I kind of thought that, you know, policy would be quite interesting, actually. And actually, the, the, the sort of landing spot, the transition was training in public health, which then allowed you to sort yourself and figure out what really were you interested in. So I did that around 30 to age 30, went to America for a year, did an MSc in public health and, and actually found that the sorting was complete really because it it, it was indeed in policy and economics so then I I I went from there so that was a kind of disjuncture at 30 which is quite typical for medics actually I find because they all come to me now for advice or a lot anyway at that particular age. Interesting well we'll come on to your American experience in a bit but first of all tell us about the the Health Foundation where you're currently CEO its aims goals and so on. 
Yes, so it is the most fantastic job in Britain, I think, uh, that I've got. So the Health Foundation is an endowed foundation, which means that uh, some money was given to uh, found a charity from the sale of a company, actually. And then the company just walked away and allowed it to be an independent foundation. So we have, you know, £1.2 billion. uh, And then from that, we live off the interest. So it's about £45, £47 a year that we spend. So it's an independent charitable foundation and our mission is very broad. It's to improve healthcare and to improve health as well. So it's a twin mission. So we work on those things. And as you can imagine, there's quite a lot to do on both of those, given the state of healthcare just in Britain, but also um, the state of health and what's happening there. So we, we do all of this, our activities, to, to with the aim to support the UK population. But of course, some of our work looks internationally to see if there are lessons that we need to learn. So, so I would say a, a lot of our work is doing research. We fund research. We do a lot of other activities ourselves. We've got 250 staff to do that work. I am a I call myself these days a researcher, so I'm really more of an academic than a chief executive who simply is an administrator, which is important, but not the whole thing. And we give out grants, too, to improve services and improve health. Um, So practice and policy and research is our thing, and we do quite a lot of it. So it's a total privilege, I have to say, and we set our own agenda. That's, um, I, I love what you said, that you've got the best job in Britain. It's, uh, you know, it's the old aphorism that if you're doing what you love, you never work a day in your life, right? Indeed, it does feel like that. I have, well, most of the time it feels like that. Of course, management gets in the way, as anybody <laughs> who's CEO knows all about that. Uh, but I think it's a price worth paying. Yeah, because, because normally when people start a business, uh, and I tell health entrepreneurs this, that they start it because it's something they love or something they're good at, preferably both. But running an organization often has nothing to do with those things. It's things like facilities management, HR, accounts receivable, accounts payable, contracts, all that sort of stuff. So I, I presume that's not what floats your boat. It's the, uh, it's the actual work, yes? Well, luckily, I've got staff to do all that. And of course, we've got an investment team as well, given that size of endowment. So I do have that. But you can't just switch off. You have to know a bit about it. So I do. I know enough about it. And then the other thing I think as a CEO, as opposed to a clinician or indeed an academic, is that you soon figure out whether you've got strategic nows because you constantly have to create a narrative and a vision for the future and, and decide the hot topics. And unless you have the strategic gene, you can't do that. Um, so, you, but you, to know to figure that one out, you have to really put yourself on the line and jump into a CEO job uh, where you you really sink or swim when it comes. You, you know, you can manage staff perhaps, so you know your technical detail, but unless you can do strategy at the same time. I think those are the three things you truly need. Yeah, I, I, I would concur. I've actually, in the various things I've been involved in, in initiating largely medical technologies, I studiously avoid that role because I don't think I've got the chops. So kudos to you. Um, in fact, you've been, you are and have been a member of many boards, groups, task forces involving national organizations such as the CQC, the uh Quality Care Commission. I'm terrible with the briefing. <laughs> the Audit Commission and the UK Health Security Agents and uh, CRUK. Much of your contributions about national direction and future strategy. 
can you gaze into your crystal ball and tell us over the next five to 10 years, where, what are we going to see in national strategy in health and care? And what are you telling people at the moment? Yes, I mean, well, I think all across the globe, you see that all of our economies are, well, certainly in the Western world, hampered by the debt that has accrued as a result of the pandemic and before that, the financial crisis. And now, of course, with inflation resulting in part from energy and um, Ukraine conflict. So, so money is too tight to mention as the pop song goes. And I think a lot of governments are kind of struggling with that and how to pay for public services without putting up taxes, which of course are, or at least the taxes that we know about. Um, so that's a massive challenge in the face of not just the past rear view challenges that we've had, but also the future ones. And the big one, I think, apart from another pandemic, but the bigger one, I think, is for many, many countries is the demographic. Uh, it's called a time bomb, but the massive increase in the numbers of people over 65 that's going to occur in Western Europe, particularly and the Americas, uh, North America, a, a, com a combination of that with the increasing morbidity that that will bring and then of course the shrinking labor market to support such people um, so i think that is a very very heady combination so everybody is i think thinking about how to pay for health services regardless if you're with your private or a public system because even if you're in a private system like the us a large chunk over half is spent is is, is public money how do you do this and co keep the health system progressing forwards and and actually taking advantage of new developments that we know are coming like AI and technology and new treatments. So I think that's a massive, massive, so productivity trialing of new technology is going to be on the stocks. I think how best to support older people having multiple chronic diseases is another big, big area. So we'll see hopefully a switch of investment that's really in, the, in Britain anyway, in the last 20 years is really the lion's share of investment in healthcare has gone to hospitals. It will now be going, uh, be redirected more towards primary and community care. So I think we'll see a lot of that, a lot of virtual care, obviously. Uh, we have to have some kind of solution to social care because with lots of older, frailer people who otherwise would fall into their national health system avoidably, how best to support them and pay for that. And then on the other side of the coin, of course, health. I mean, we've had two recent studies that three recent studies, which I think are pretty horrendous. You know, one is showing the effect of ultra processed food, for example, on heart, heart disease and mortality, uh, which has just been been was in the press a couple of weeks ago. And then the other is the global rise in cancer that is happening, particularly amongst the under 50s. So we are seeing we are reaping the rewards of ill health. And that will, again, add to the wave of morbidity that we now have to deal with. So I think the health prevention agenda, as well as a push towards primary care and a real emphasis on trialing new technologies, along with a total re-examination of how we're going to pay for this, I think is um, at, at, at the same time as controlling costs. So it's not a question of just pushing public money and, and asking people to pay privately is a real review, I suspect, of the tax structure and how we're going to pay and maybe call on wealth taxes. So that's an economics response, but that's that's what we're facing. And it's really, really big, not just for us, but for everyone. Yeah, I, I, um, I shan't attribute this uh, quotation, but uh, a prominent, should we say, physician once said to me over an adult beverage, 
that um, the difference between the American and the British healthcare systems was that we in Britain were broke and knew it, and the Americans are broke and haven't figured it out yet. And that sort of takes me on to my next question. I mentioned in my introduction that you're a Harkness Fellow at the Commonwealth Fund in New York. So you, uh, as well as your other degrees, you have your BTA, you've been to America. Uh, and you studied the prospects for the national reform of healthcare in order to ensure universal access and coverage. Jennifer, I, I spent half my life living and working in America and have been privileged to travel to many countries as an itinerant surgeon, if you will. Nowhere has the ideal solution in my book. Rationing is a global problem. Different etiologies, of course. It may be funding, it may be the cost, it may be education, maybe for personnel or facilities. How did that experience of going to the US of A shape your thinking? And loaded question here for you, who in the world is delivering the best care by whatever parameter you choose to judge it? Yeah, that's a good question. So I, I, think, I think the first thing is, how does it shape my thinking? So my, what I was looking at is how come in the US there is tons and tons and tons, millions of dollars spent on research to understand the problems of the healthcare system and suggest solutions, all very well known. It's not that people don't know the answers, they do. And they know it in Technicolor in the US. The, the, the interesting thing was how can they not, how can the federal state not bite the, and some, and some states not bite the bullet to provide universal coverage, at least a basic level of care to the most vulnerable? Uh, outside of you know Medicare and Medicaid, and the answer really is not a technical issue, and it's not a lack of knowledge. It's not a lack of research. It is a lack of polit political will, which is I suppose obvious. But it's in my assessment, it was the lack of political will based on a kind of conception of social justice, which was where the thermostat was set too cold compared to Europe. In Europe, it's really understood that as you know, you have to cover the. The, the, the poorest, you have to provide a basic level of care for everybody. There can be nobody who's uninsured. That this is very important. It's almost an unquestioned social model that's part of the compact between populations and their governments. You don't have to argue it. In the US, it was highly, highly contested, that and the role of government in the way it simply isn't in, 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 in Europe. So that was a kind of political question, not a technological question, let's put it that way. So that's one thing I learned, and I, and I was quite relieved to get back to a place where you didn't have to have a war to get messages across about universal coverage. So that's the first thing, and indeed cost control, by the way, as well. And the second, but the second more heartening thing I found was, was firstly, the wealth of research and the quality of of, of thinking over there was just stupendous. And I pledged to try to imitate that or at least try to create an environment like that when I got back. Uh, but also, of course, America is a country of massive extremes. And along with all the uninsured and horrendous care that people get, if you're, you're working poor in particular at that point, that's 1990, you also have the most eye-wateringly fantastic care at the top end of the range. And there was lots to learn from that that could be brought back from to, to Britain about how to do things. And, you know, some of the things I learned were about, particularly about the role of doctors in management, in the Mayo, for example, I thought that was very, very important. The use of technology, what could be done, 
also very important. The, the assessment of quality measures, how quality was assessed at, at board level, and it was done very seriously. So lots of things like that that I discovered, but that had the flip side of the coin was was large amounts of uncompensated care given to individuals who were working and poor and practically bankrupted by unforeseen medical costs and indeed the fact that they were born or with some condition that couldn't be covered. So so those are the main things, I think. So in turn to your third question then, well, who in the world is delivering the best care? I think you're right, your instinct. I mean, I, my Bible on some of this is the OECD Health at a Glance. I don't know if you, your listeners know this document, but every year the OECD really do a thorough kicking of the tyres of health care and health to look across OECD countries, outcomes, patient experience, resilience, affordability access, chronic disease management, risk factor management uh, relative to spending. And, you know, it's a mixed bag. It depends which of your indicators you really you really go for. If you want to go for cancer outcomes, then clearly Britain, Britain where I'm sitting now, is not top of the pack and it's lost ground, particularly some cancers. But if you go for access to care in terms of affordability, then Britain scores near the top. So I think that it's they're good and bad in places, I would say. And indeed, just the last point on that, the OECD some years ago did this fantastic analysis and they divided health systems in the developed world into four archetypes. And they looked, you know, one was a sort of nationalised system like ours in Britain. Another was a very private system, such as in the US. Another was a sort of Bismarckian social insurance model like Germany. And there was another one, I can't remember what that was. But effectively, they looked at all the countries in those groups and looked at their healthcare systems and found that actually the variation within those groups was greater than the variation across. So in other words, the model itself doesn't matter. It's what you do with it, and more importantly, how much you decide to spend on it. Yeah, um, uh, your, your comments about the United States really resonate. Um, and it's, it's, it, it's very interesting when you are a patient in a system uh, as a physician, and you see you see a side of it that I think many patients who are not uh, healthcare providers do not see. Obviously, we're not going to solve that on this uh, in this conversation, but hopefully food for thought. So you're, you're extensively published, over 200 papers in leading journals, articles, all sorts of publications. Pick one or two that you are most proud of and which you feel have made the most impact. Yeah, thank you for that. So... Um... I think there is two sets of contributions here. One is my own publications and the others are the publications I've got a hand in because my organisation is producing them, which which I may have instigated or I've supported others in doing. So I'd like to put those both together. And an example of that would be, well, a really good example of that, I think, is the work that we did at the Health Foundation with the Institute of Fiscal Studies, which is a sort of tax and spend think tank, to to look at the kinds of to to model what the nhs resourcing needs were over time and the result of this extensive modeling got into the bid for an in a spending review at budget time in britain and as a result on the nhs's 70th, 70th anniversary in 2018 
the, the Theresa May, who's the Prime Minister then, agreed to a £20.8 billion uplift for the NHS, partly as a result of our third party independent analysis. So I can't, I can't claim that we, we did it. It wasn't our necessarily our own slam dunk, as you might say in the States, but it was certainly a contributor towards that. So that, that gave us enormous satisfaction, I think. And I think the other one that made most impact is my own, one of my own ones, uh, but, but again, it's a team, it's just not me, or I happen to lead that team, is that we devised, we, we worked to develop, this is all very technical now, a new resource allocation formula for the National Health Service uh, for hospital care, which took into account more carefully needs of the population. So in Britain, what we do for those who are listening from abroad, we collect taxes into the centre of government uh, and indeed the centre. And then that's given to the NHS. And then the NHS itself decides how to divvy up the, the allocations across the country being a nationalised system based on population size and also the needs of those populations um, so that it's fair and there can be equitable access, or at least that's the theory. And uh, over time, this this formula that does that has, has to be refined. But we just we just developed a new system, which was was a, just a it was just a complete break with the past. Or and it really did provide a lot more information about the needs of the population to allow fair allocation. So I'm sorry that's a bit technical, but that was one of the. So again, you could see it enacted. It was all put into practice. So it's now responsible for helping to um, allocate probably about 50 to 60 billion pounds worth of money across the health service, 60. So that, that's quite nice. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you. I think, you know, I've, I've never done anything so profoundly important as that, but, you know, a, a body of work that I was involved with um, that addressed a technique in, in surgery that I passionately believed would protect lives and lead to better outcomes. And to see that become a part of clinical practice yes. and, and be adopted by examining boards and such like. It takes forever, but, you know, it's like an, an avalanche, you know, it just takes a snowball starting to roll. So let, let's yes. move on to, to a, a different topic. You, you were chief executive at the Nuffield Trust, a post that you held for eight years, and you achieved a great deal there, growing the base, leading the largest randomized controlled trial in the world of telehealth and telecare. So that's something I'm fascinated by. And we've had as our guest on uh, this podcast, a dear old chum of mine, Dr. Yulam Wang, who I collaborated with on some robotics projects, but he developed the World Telehealth Initiative, and it's doing amazing things in Ukraine and elsewhere. So tell us about your experience at the Trust. Yeah, so the trust, um, when I took it over in 2008, it had sort of slightly fallen on hard times, I would say. This was a small trust. It's about 10 times smaller than our current foundation that I'm leading, but it was an endowed foundation, had a nice pot, which released a few millions a year. But really, it was almost a blank sheet of paper for me to be able to craft it. There was, I think, two and a half staff, administrative staff when I arrived, and no one else in post. And there were these empty offices with tumbleweed sort of floating around, uh, but a very supportive chair. So really, th this is what I really like most, which is to create from a blank sheet, near blank sheet of paper, something that is vital. It's just, you know, you learn that that's the kind of thing that, that you like doing. And I like freedom. Freedom and money is a great thing, isn't it? So I like that. Um, so so I just, cre we just created that. And over the, when I, when I left, you know, we were, 
from being a quiet sort of, you know, organisation that needed mending, um, we ended up to be a very vibrant think tank, as, it, as, as described, with 35 staff at that point and really, you know, betting on a national stage. So I was very pleased with that, uh, how, how that was done, and then transferred myself to a bigger party, as it were, the Health Foundation, to try to do something similar. But the foundation itself wasn't damaged. The, the trial you mentioned, I, I, actually, I didn't lead it, but I, I, uh, we led, the Nuffield Trust led the quantitative side of that. There was some qualitative arms and so on. And, and that was really, really interesting. I mean, we probably don't have time to go into this, but the whole area of how to evaluate complex service-based applied interventions is a really interesting one, which we're going to have to really return to now. We need to use technology more in future to cope with the the challenges that I mentioned earlier, not least AI in the face of high costs and ageing. So we tried to evaluate the impact of telehealth on admissions to hospital. Did telehealth and telecare uh, that people used at home support a reduction, result in a reduction in avoidable admissions? And the answer in this particular trial was no, it didn't. It didn't have much effect at all. And that the reason for that, we think, is not because the telehealth and telecare wasn't any good. It was the wraparound care that was, it was quite murky as to what was happening in the sites, as to whether they really were carrying out the protocol and at what intensity they were carrying it out. So it made me realise that when you do a complex trial like this, you just have to be right on top of the actual practice that is trying to deliver change, the human intangible side, not the kit. So I think that's a lesson for us as we go into an AI age too. So that that's a sort of short answer, I think, that there's a long story behind it, which I'm, I'm sure your listeners won't want to hear. I don't know, but I think, you know, your your high level approach is, is, is absolutely right. It's how you, technology is not the solution, it's a tool. Uh, that you t- you utilize and a very wise man who I had the privilege of knowing, a uh, Bill Cook, who who started a um, a medical device company, passed away a number of years ago, and his his motivation with the company wasn't to make money; it was to develop things, tools that improved the lives of patients as they went through medical treatments. And he said, if you do that, you'll, the other things will follow; you'll be successful. And the problem is, you know, there's the Nike slogan, just do it. That's not the approach in medicine. You've got to, what's the clinical problem we're trying to solve? What's the care we're trying to improve? Can, is it a real problem or is it, is it me? And is this the right tool to help solve that problem? Not just throwing, you know, when you're a hammer, the whole world looks like a nail, I think. So you mentioned earlier something that you, you wrote in 2016. You co-authored an article entitled NHS Funding in England. And here we go. Money's too tight to mention. I love that title. Love, love, love it. I always enjoy puns. Uh, the NHS is a political hot potato, as we've uh, briefly touched on. And the problems are deep, difficult and divisive. So I clearly also love alliteration. So NHS funding, is that the solution? Throwing money at it? I rather think it's more complex than that. The service that Nye Bevan uh, introduced, what, 75 years ago this year, didn't contemplate the population we now have, aging patients, developed treatments, existential threats, many more challenges. Wax lyrical, Dr. Dixon. (laughs) It is underfunded. 
And I think that is the biggest issue. It's not the only issue, just as you say. If you compare what the NHS spends per year, per head, compared to France, we would be spending £40 billion more per year on what is currently a £160 billion budget. If we spent the same as Germany, we'd be spending £70 billion extra a year. And if we had, um, you know, capital spending is less than a half of the OECD average. That's OECD. That isn't France and Germany. That includes Slovenia. It includes Greece it inc- that it has gone through. So we are, we are underfunded. That is the objective fact if you look at the figures. So that has to be taken into consideration when you look at the lack of investment, when you look at the performance of the National Health Service. But on top of that, as you say, it's not the only story either, but it is a big part of the story. So, you know, areas that you feel that, that, that need to be looked at uh, include the incentives in the system. They need, we need to look at the management of the system. We need to look at how clinicians are engaged or not in management, uh, how they're pulled through the system. Uh, we need to look at the use of data and is are we exploiting the potential? So there's a whole range of things we need to look at. But for me, the bottom line, it's not just my view, it is the facts. If you look at the figures there laid out, it's the fu- it's funding. So that is a big difference between us and France, not just for one year, it's over, dec- over decades and that accumulates and that's what we have seen. So the, I think the NHS under those circumstances has done pretty well when you look at the performance indicators, but we could do far more. Well, I, I don't want to be too provocative. It's not in my nature, but, you know, I have a pal who he'll know who he is when he listens in. He's a GP. He goes in early, he stays late, he does home visits, he calls patients, he cares. He genuinely really, really cares about his patients. And there are other doctors who I could mention who, quite frankly, just aren't engaged. Their heart's not in it. Are we recruiting the wrong people? You know, I think it's too easy to say it's it's burnout. You know, the system's underfunded. Are we not, are we recruiting? Listen, I, I've recently had my son being ill. I, I lost my mother a few years ago, my father a few years before that. And I saw widely divergent care. I saw a nurse looking after my late dad who was to, you know, there was an old TV show, Angels. She was it. She went way above and beyond the job. And then at another hospitalization my mum had, there were, there were, nurses working at the institution who, whose behavior was, was shameful, frankly. They didn't even do the basics. So I think, you know, I think we could do better with the money we've got and spend it more wisely. So yes. I don't know if that's provocative, but... No, I- no, I think it's entirely consistent with what I, I was saying. I think, I think a couple of things there. I think the first thing is there have been workforce shortages. There are workforce shortages. It's one in eight. Uh, which is a lot in a system like ours. So I think there's that has to be. And, and there are workforce shortages because of a lack of investment earlier on to plan for, for those staff. I, th- I think that's that's the first thing to say. I think the second thing is management, management of clinical time, management of clinicians is another one. I think the third area is the 
over time, as I was saying earlier, the lack of investment in primary and community care, which is what your GP has been seeing, your GP friend, because over the last 20 years, the lion's share, as I said, of investment has gone into hospitals and in particular to service elective care for which the demand is rising, not for community and um, primary care, which is doing a great job under, under the circumstances and is also trying to deal with people with more people with multiple chronic conditions, which are more com- who are more complex. So I think I think a reorientation of funding towards those things, more more for workforce, particularly in primary care, but underlying uh, and management and then underlying investment in technology, which is going to make people's lives easier as working lives easier as well. So it's, 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 it's a complex thing. But the last thing to say, Jonathan, is, is exactly as you say, for every hospital where, where there's something awful going on, there's something fantastic going on in the next door ward. So it's very, very difficult to make overall generalizations. Oh, absolutely. I just think that, you know, just let's not throw good money after bad. Let's work out what the problems are and actually solve them. And, and I've seen in other organizations, people do astonishing things. If, uh, I forget the author who used the term, Jim something or another, good to great. The guy wrote good to great. Get oh, the yes. right, yeah, get the right people on the bus and they'll do magic. Exactly. So, just one other addendum there. I mean, if you look at what happened, not just in Britain, but across the globe during the pandemic, that was really impressive, was it not? The GPs, the hospitals, the nursing, they really, really went above and beyond when there was this dramatic emergency threat. And I don't think any of us forget that. And you know that can't be recreated in peacetime, as it were. But I think that does show an underlying commitment there to the professionalism, which is deeply impressive. Oh, absolutely. In fact, one of the guests I had on was... Uh a pal of mine who's a um, professor of uh, critical care medicine at University College, Merv Singer, who led the initiative to develop CPAP machines and get them deployed in double quick time. So I'm totally with you. I'm not an, an, an utter curmudgeon. <laughs> I, I just, I'm, I'm terrified that people think, just throw money at it and they'll all be all right. Unless we change some infrastructure things, I don't think it'll be all right and we'll be 40 billion less well off. So just, you know. I think I think that's I think that's absolutely true. I don't think anyone would say it's just money. I'm uh, certainly not the treasury by the way. But the but the fact that that discrepancy between us and Europe really has to be part of the picture. I agree with you there. So mm. let's change topic a little bit. As a surgeon I've seen hospitals change due to more outpatient surgery. Things that we did as inpatients when I trained are now done as day cases. Uh, the need for isolation rooms for infectious diseases and interventional techniques, things that weren't around when I qualified, and on and on. Given your broad and deep experience, can you give us some some thoughts on what future services might look like? Yes, well, it's uh, it's. Uh, I mean, there's been a lot that's written about this, isn't there? I mean, on the one hand, it's almost a dumbbell, really, meaning that at one end there will be acceleration of very high end treatments surely with the advent of you know AI and you know further medical advances is bound to pull the system towards more highly specialized centers needing a lot of kit um, on the other hand given the demographic bulge of people my age then over the next 30 years who will collect chronic diseases and then be an end of life situation 
that will require a ton of community and, and general practice, primary care, and indeed social care support. So I kind of see a dumbbell here, but I see almost the biggest it's a question about what what will happen. It's a question of what should happen. I think there should be a bigger growth in the community and um, community side, at not least because a lot of diagnostics will be happening in the community. A lot of chronic disease management will be and support will be happening in the community. There will be a lot more telehealth and telecare to support people live more independent lives. So I think we'll see hopefully some investment going into that side. I mean, that, so so will hospitals grow or shrink well they have been shrinking in size haven't they um meaning in terms of the bed the bed base in britain has sort of halved in 30 years i don't see that 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 trend can continue well it couldn't because we'd have no beds left because of this bulge in demography so i don't see hospitals getting smaller any time soon there may be more rationalization onto more specialist sites as services develop but ultimately i think the big game to be the big, big investments will be in the kit and the technology for virtual care and indeed for hope care at home. Uh, and who knows what's going to happen in, you know, on the board of Cancer Research UK, who knows what's going to happen in future with diagnosis, with immunotherapies instead of surgeries. We just, we just don't know. The very, very exciting front is that genomics can manage risk factors and so on. So, so anyway, that, that's the picture as far as I see it, a sort of dumbbell type of of, 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 of investment but of those the biggest investment I think would have to be in the community yeah I think that's that's right hospitals are dreadful places to be aren't they um, in, at in, the moment in, they are yes <laughs> Lord, yes absolutely so it seems like everyone has a podcast today even I'm doing one so <laughs> you host the health foundation podcast which has got a large audience with diverse uh, expert guests from multiple fields you're currently running, or as you've been running, a series to celebrate the NHS at 75, as, as I said. And I heartily recommend this to folks listening in. I've listened in, and it's fantastic. It's now my feed for brain food while I'm, Ooh, while I'm exercising. Yeah, no, it's, it's top, top notch. It keeps me thinking. You're, you're using social media to good effect. And I've ranted and raved about people who use social media to bad effect. And in, in fact, I strongly feel that the overuse of social media is not good for us in many regards. How can we all do better in this arena? And and tell us about any aha moments that you had on your podcast, because I've been very fortunate to be educated in the couple of years I've been doing it, a few years, by some amazing people. Tell us about your aha moments. And tell us about how we can all use social media better. Thank you. Well, uh, thank you very much for ni- nice words about our podcast. I mean, the podcast is really a sort of sop to me as the chief of the Health Foundation to roam far and wide on issues that we may not be working directly on, but it allows me to bring in some people to consider some wider issues, whether it's some, you know, AI and health or whether it's uh, deaths of despair or whether it's the role of local government in healthcare or whether it's how stress weathers our health, stuff like that. I mean, it's it's all green. What do we learn from the green movement and how we can apply that to health capital? So it really is a great indulgence that people allow me, but it does keep um, brain food sort of, it, it keeps uh, different perspectives in play to help us understand how best to uh, orientate our work. And hopefully it's interesting to people too. In terms of aha moments, I'm not sure I have had any like, you know, light bulb moments, but I just feel that that quite a lot has been very enriching. And I think one of the themes in particular 
has been understanding the you know why healthy life expectancy and indeed life expectancy has been stalling in the country and also compared to America. For those American uh, listeners, there's a, a great book that we had the author on. So the book is called Death of Despair and the author was Nobel Prize winning economist Angus Deaton, Deaton uh, and his uh, and the NFT journalist Sarah O'Connor, who are brilliant on, on, on all of this. And, you know, just understanding the what's happened to the economy in the States you know, the enraged communities that have been crushed by globalization and then the impact on their health of that over many years. And then, of course, fentanyl and opioid crisis. That was a really, really rich session. And then we followed that up with with uh, similar sort of things covering Britain and indeed, particularly in Scotland as, as well, because that's the you know, where health is, is is frayed the most in Scotland and the northeast of England. So I think that the wider determinants of health and how, like poverty, like housing, like uh, lack of education, how that has combined to have the most devastating effect on the health fabric, I think was probably one of the most interesting ones. Uh, but there's a lot there, so do take a look. I mean, the other, the other question you had is social media. I mean, I don't know the answer to this. I have to say I'm quite reticent about, apart from podcasts, which I love, I don't really use social media. I, I, I kind of do tweet occasionally, but my tweets are all factual or mostly. And I, I really think about responsible use of social media. There's just so much sounding off, isn't there? There's so much knee-jerk reaction. Just, I just wish all that noise would stop and people could just stop for a nanosecond and think. So I'm, I'm a bit sort of hardline myself on this and just try my best just to produce some graphs and just to try to spread insights as opposed to my own personal opinions. You know, there was a... Um, Matty Stepanek. Matty Stepanek was a young, lovely young man who I had the privilege of knowing. He had cystic fibrosis. He died quite young, but he was a poet uh, as, as a kid. And he wrote a poem in the wake of the LA riots. And it was called, Can We All Please Just Stop? And it was about exactly that. It's because you can react doesn't mean you should react. And you know, there are consequences to things we say and do, especially healthcare providers who, who, you know, a position of trust should not be abrogated, frankly. So, yeah, I'm totally with you. So I mentioned a crystal ball, sort of a magical device. I'm going to mention another magical device, which I always like to finish with. If a magical genie granted you three wishes in the field of health, should we say, healthcare, what would those three wishes be? Yes, thank you. Well, I probably need more than three, I guess, is there. I think, um, I mean, in Britain, I would say, you know, stop all this nonsense, distracting dis- discussion about alternative funding models for the National Health Service or alternative models and fund it properly, have proper, proper contingent of staff, fund primary care, as I say, and have some really good, intelligent, big demonstrations of technology, because they may be be able to do some heavy lifting for us. So those are the healthcare ones, I think. And then if I'm allowed, I would just want to say something about health, because really health, you know, we haven't even talked about this, but the epidemic of obesity and so on and so forth. We just need much more cross-government seriousness on health. Uh, We need a cross-government strategy. We need to tackle some of the risk factors in particular, you know, bearing down still on tobacco, on junk food in particular. I think those are the two ones that I would really point out. Uh, But to treat it seriously as opposed to an invisible intangible that we can ignore. 
So that would be my wish. <laughs> Quite a lot more than three there. Yeah, well, the whole issue of uh, of dietary intake and and uh, people's behaviours and the role that government plays in that, I think that's a topic for probably a whole podcast. Series. Yes, indeed. So yeah. I think I think we're going to have to get you back on, Jennifer. I'm afraid that's <laughs> because I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. And I'd I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Jennifer Dixon for taking the time to talk to us today. Total delight it's been to hear about your positive impact that you've had, your enthusiasm for what you do, and and the knock-on effects it has for patients across the country, because as I've said before, we're all going to be patients sooner or later. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you, Jonathan. So folks, uh, please check out the archives and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And please join us next week for another fascinating episode. Until then, I'm Dr. Jonathan Sakir, and thank you for listening to the EMJ podcast. Please stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now. Bye.